everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Christina Kersey. She works at the National Juvenile Defender Center. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So what does the National Juvenile Defender Center do? That's a great question. Um, So first of all, we changed our name in January of this year to the Galt Center. Um, And the reason for the name change is what we've started referring to as dropping the J. Um, We really wanted to move away from the use of the word juvenile. Um, And we had really started pushing our defenders to move away from the word juvenile and to kind of start correcting all the stakeholders against using the word juvenile. And so we figured we really can't do that um, and then continue to have juvenile in the name. Um, so yeah. we, we, we renamed ourselves um, after the Supreme Court decision in Ray Galt, which stood for the proposition that youth are entitled to due process rights, just like adults, the right to an attorney, the right to an appeal, the right to a transcript and cross-examination and all those things that we feel very strongly about. So we thought the Galt Center was kind of a perfect name. So the Galt Center is really focused on excellence in youth defense um, and defending youth rights in general and really specifically access to really qualified, specialized, trained defenders, hungry, zealous advocates for youth in the courtroom. Um, So much of what we do is train mainly defenders. We have a lesson series that's um, specifically for youth defenders uh, where we train about raising race. We train about structural racism. We train about cross-examination. We train about adolescent development um, and all the topics that we just think are really important. And so we've We've trained defenders. Um, We also have regional centers. And so we really try and do technical assistance for the community and bring the communities together. Um, That's in all 50 states in Guam, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands. Um, And we have co-directors that kind of inform our work and what we need to address. We um, have publications. uh, We have standards of what we want youth defense to look like. We do some um, Amici work, and so we file briefs on issues related to adolescent development and youth defense. Um, We do a little bit of everything. Um, So those are the main things that we're doing over at the Galt Center. So it sounds like your preferred term is youth. I'm going out on a limb, but maybe you could explain why juvenile uh, is, is not 
uh, a term you like anymore? Sure. I mean, I think so much of our work. Uh, so we did partner with Fair and Just Prosecution, uh, with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges on this language guide and really started talking about how to use youth affirming language, um, why it's important to refer to youth by their names and not the juvenile and othering the children that find themselves in the delinquency system. And so the move away from juvenile was like that move away from othering kids. Um, also, we really felt that it's a it's a dog whistle. There's nothing positive connected to juvenile. You know, when you when you Google it and you have like what's going to come up next, it's always delinquent. Um, and so it has really negative connotations. And it's also similar to thug and all that. It's just become like a dog whistle um, for the racial disparities and for the overrepresentation of black, Latin, indigenous youth in the system. And so we really wanted to move away from the term juvenile. I mean, the reality is, right, like, so this is my favorite juvenile. This is my nephew, Quincy. I never refer to him as a juvenile, right? Like, I don't say, like, oh, here are my first day of school photos of my juvenile. We don't talk about that, about children that we love and children we care about. And it's only when we talk about youth that are in court that we start all of a sudden start throwing around this term. Um, and I think it's a way of putting distance between ourselves and the youth that we're representing um, and that we see in court. Um, and we really want folks to start embracing the fact that these are children, these are youth, um, and we should call them that. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, juvenile is not really a word that we use anymore. Other than, as you say, uh, when we're talking about like juvenile delinquency or juvenile court or, or, or juvenile services or something like that. So that makes sense. I just hadn't heard it before. Um, ah. And I try to keep up on language, um, but that one was new. Uh, yes. So it, it, it seems like a never ending struggle that I'm never going to win, but always. that's okay. Always, always. We're doing our best. Um, so let me ask you, um, what is your background and how did you get involved in working with youth? Um, so I started with the New Jersey Office of the Public Defender. Uh, I was a frontline youth defender for 18 and a half years. Um, and it really is for anybody who's considering it as a job. It's really just really one of the best jobs. I, I loved it. I loved being in court. I loved representing youth. Um, I'd like to say that I have a story that uh, I really went into law school thinking that this would be what I was going to do, and that's just not accurate. Um, I had a background, and I had volunteered at a camp for many, many years, all through law school, all through undergrad, even into high school, um, at a camp for kids with um, learning difficulties, uh, physical differences. Um, and so I had always envisioned maybe working with children and then decided I wanted to go to law school, thought I would do some policy things. That was really my interest back then. Um, and ended up working at a law firm that did some federal representation. Um, and I ended up going with one of the partners to the Union County Jail in the middle of summer and was like, this is what I wanna do for the rest of my life. I wanna get people out of jail. Um, and ended up going to the New Jersey Office of the Public Defender 
um, someone was going out on maternity leave. And so I started in um, the youth section and never looked back. It was just exactly where I wanted to be. It's a practice that um, is so important, um, so under-recognized and um, it just calls on a lot of different skills, not only to be this really intense trial advocate, um, when you need to cross-examine, you need trial skills, those are basic, but you also need to be able to really connect with youth and their families and learn that, that dance as well, because the client, even when they're very young, is still the child. Um, and so that puts you in some interesting situations, but it's great work for anybody who's interested. Reach out to me. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, I found out you're located in Asbury Park, uh, which for Bruce Springsteen fans out there, you all know it's the home of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it is. It's like the birthplace of Springsteen. Um, yes. So I actually took uh, new headshots and I took them in front of Madame Marie's as like an Easter egg for Springsteen fans everywhere. Um, no one got it, but I, for Springsteen fans, we get it. So yes, yes. Uh, I love Springsteen and I love that I live in a town where I can like walk past something and be like, oh, he sang about that in that song. All right. Um, so um, one thing I wanted to talk about is an interesting case um, where you were the trial attorney in the state in the interest of NH. Um, which unfortunately uh, sounds like you guys othered your own client, <laughs> but you got to protect their name anyway. So I yeah. understand. Um, but but what was that about, and and how did it get all the way up to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So NH was charged with a homicide. Um, I represented him in in New Jersey in Essex County, um, and. In New Jersey, there you, unlike all states, the there is a procedure where you can try youth as adults. Um, in New Jersey, it's a what they call a discretionary waiver. The prosecutor has a discretion as to whether or not to file a motion uh, to try a youth in adult court. And so, NH was charged with a homicide. The state had filed a motion to try him as an adult, and I had requested their complete file. Um, so full and complete discovery, which would be everything that they had on the case. Um, and that was really the, the issue that, and they disagreed with what a youth was entitled to at that stage in the proceeding. Um, and it was an unsettled area of the law. Um, to me, it seemed very settled. It seemed like once a complaint was filed, I was entitled to discovery. So a complaint had been filed. I was entitled to all of their discovery to represent NH at this motion uh, for transfer to try and keep him in youth court. Um, and the state disagreed. They were essentially saying that this is somewhat of an in-between. This is just a jurisdictional hearing. This is really just about whether he's going to be in youth court or in adult court. This isn't a full trial. Um, this isn't a fine resolution of the details. And so um, they weren't um, required to give me everything that I was demanding. Um, and so that's essentially how it ended up in front of the Supreme Court. It was a somewhat unsettled area of the law because there was no court rule that really talked about what youth were entitled to at a transfer hearing. Um, and so it was 
also kind of in between changes to our transfer statute. Um, and so I think the courts were really interested in how this was going to work in practice. Um, and so that's how we ended up in front of the Supreme Court. It was uh, a slow process. Um, I think we were almost waited three years for a decision from the Supreme Court on this one issue. And this, the, there was a stay, so nothing happened on the case other than me going and visiting NH in the detention center to let him know, you know what I had heard from the, the appellate division. Um, and so, yeah, we waited three years, but it was well worth the wait. It was a unanimous decision written by our Chief Justice Rabner, um, and it, it, gets, it gives youth the right to full and complete discovery in the state of New Jersey. Um, and what's been great is that uh, we were just talking about it recently. When you look on Westlaw, you know, NH has been cited 45 times in New Jersey on all different arguments as to building on rights that youth should have at waiver hearings. You know, should youth be entitled to um, Miranda hearings prior to a waiver hearing? Um, can they call experts? What does that look like? Um, and so it's been really exciting because we've been able to use a lot of the language from that that really talks about what a monumentous decision this is. This is a huge decision. It's um, what's been described as the most weighty decision that a youth court can make um, because you essentially rip a youth out of youth court, which is about rehabilitation, and you pretend that they're an adult. And that's just a fiction that we've created um, because they're not adults, um, but it does mean that then they could face very lengthy terms in prison and in many states life in prison. Um, and so it's an, it's an important case. Um, I'm happy to be a part of it. Um, and NH was just a, also just a wonderful client um, who had the patience while we kind of fought this out in the appellate division. And then into the Supreme Court. And this is, you know, a really interesting area because, um, you know, even in my limited time of uh, covering stuff, we've really, our understanding of uh, the development of the youth brain has really advanced uh, very rapidly. Um, I live out in California. And so, uh, you know, the laws have changed very dramatically uh, just in 10 years. Uh, we've gone from the DA having almost complete discretion, uh, at least in certain types of cases, uh, to, to what was called at the time direct file in adult court, um, to now it's completely shifted the other way. And they have, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, they have to uh, file for a transfer uh, to adult court. And in some cases, if they're under, I want to say the age of 14 now, uh, they can't, um, they can't go to adult court at all. Um, mm -hmm. at which, uh, you know, for, for some cases kind of on that bubble is a little bit problematic, but, uh, it, it just shows how, how far things have gone in a very short period of time. Absolutely. And I mean, I would I would push back and say right it's not problematic it's it's something that we it's something that we've created right and so I know that there are progressive prosecutors who have run 
um, under the banner of not trying children as adults. Um, and while for the United States, um, 14 is better than some states, you know, in 2016, New Jersey removed 14 year olds. And so they raised the age to 15, right? And that was a great step forward. Um, I would have loved it to have been higher, but I'll, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we're at least taking 14 year olds out of the mix. But the reality is that in other countries, they're, they're still sort of flabbergasted that we don't have minimum ages of prosecution and more than half of our states don't. So very young children could be tried um, in our system. But that's, you know, the, the UN Council on the Child talks about a minimum age of 14, even for involvement in youth court. Um, and so in that respect, you know, the United States is, is behind on how we treat children. Um, and certainly this idea of how long they can spend in prison if they are transferred. You know, we had um, a group here from Ireland and they were they were flabbergasted. They, they couldn't believe it. There are limits, 10 years, 12 years, automatic look backs, opportunities of parole and all these safeguards in place um, for youth that end up in um, their prison system. So they were really overwhelmed with what um, we had in our in our system. And what have we learned? I mean, you know, I, I often get this, you know, some uh, kid commits a horrible crime at the age of 17. Uh, and people want to say, well, you know, this is adult con uh, conduct, so they should get adult punishment. Uh, why do you think that's not the case? So I'll say this, right? So for other, for those of us that went to college, like those college years were, at least for me, when I did the most adolescent things, the most ridiculous things. And many of us, if not most of us, were over the age of 18. Um, and so there is this idea that we can all conceptualize about 18, 19, 20 year olds doing really ridiculous things while they're with their friends away at college. And we don't ever, um, I don't think any state has a way back provision where we say, hey, they were 19 and they were just being really adolescent. We should try them as youth. Like that would be ridiculous. No one would agree with me with that. But we have no problem saying the reverse, that there's, you know, some 12 year old out there and that this behavior is so adult that we have to treat them as an adult. Um, I also would kind of take issue with this idea that like what is um, actions that are as an adult? A lot of the details of these uh, offenses are still really within the realm of adolescence. You know, I think about NH and the factors that are in that case, right? So there's peer influence. He's not by himself. It's not like this well thought out plan. It's spontaneous, right? It's like, um, in the heat of the moment, really unlikely to reoccur, not thinking long-term consequences, right? These are all the things that we know about youth. Um, and what the research says is that's not even ending at 18. Um, that's really ending more in the early 20s. Um, and some would say maybe like 25. Um, so even when you do have a 17 and a half year old, and usually what they're talking about more is like a serious offense, they're talking about homicides, they're talking about carjacking, right? Like, it's not that you have this 17 year old that has like a Ponzi scheme, right? It's not, it's not this, it's not Ocean's Eleven. It's not this well thought out plan that you're talking about. You're usually talking about something that happens in the moment, 
not thinking about long-term consequences, which is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about adolescent behavior. Um, and even though there are very sad stories that go along with that and very serious behavior, that doesn't make it any more adult. If anything, it, it shows just how adolescent they are. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good point. Um, it is interesting though, like in California, um, while we don't have like a, a, a look back mechanism, we do have a youthful offender, mm-hmm. um, you know, a provision that allows youthful offenders to actually uh, appeal for early release. So, um, you know, there is some consideration now being given to that. Yeah, and I think Vermont is the first state that they've now expanded their youth court for certain offenses over the age of 18. So they're moving towards 21. So I think that this thought process and adolescent development is really taking shape um, in a lot of these states like New York, like Vermont, like California, where they have either blended sentences or extended youth um, that kind of runs into the adult court. And so we're starting to like embrace those concepts for real. Um, and also, you know, uh, the the real fascinating thing is I don't think people give enough consideration to age because if you look at like the criminal trend line, um, you know, basically, you know, criminality kind of peaks, um, at least for a lot, uh, in in that early age. And then you actually get to the point where people pretty much age out of crime, like, you know, by yeah. the time they get to be my age, they just don't commit crimes anymore. Uh, They have better things to do or, you know, they're too tired or, uh, you know, they finally, uh, you know, gotten over their childhood trauma. I don't know what it is, but, uh, uh, you know, can you kind of speak to that? Yeah, I mean, so what I think you're talking about is um, Mulvey's study, which is called the Pathways of Desistance, where he basically looked at, a large number of youth that had been involved um, in the system when they were younger. And he looked at all different groups, youth that had been involved in like, you know, very minor offenses, youth that had been involved in what we would call violent offenses. Um, And then he kind of tracked them for years afterwards. And what he saw was that there was this natural tapering off. Um, and what we really use that is for the proposition that like, we don't have to start over like servicing and panicking because a youth has some sort of offending behavior, um, something that's been classified as against the law. It's not a reason to start sending them away to residential programs or packing their entire calendars or putting them on electronic monitors. Because what Mulvey is saying is that most of those youth are going to age out of that behavior. Um, And the second part of that study, which I think sometimes gets lost in the sauce a little bit, is that he talks about the fact that some of the youth that actually continued getting into trouble when they were older were actually the youth that had a ton of conditions and surveillance placed on them as a result of the offending behavior. So it's not only, okay, a youth gets caught with marijuana, let's give them all the services and really jump in and do all the work, we could actually be doing harm by over-servicing and overreacting to youth behavior. So one, we need to just hang on, they're gonna age out of a lot of this, but two, we need to be really careful about how we intervene because we could be doing more harm 
um, than good by allowing them to learn those tools in order to make better decisions in the future. And one of the things is like having tools to be in a situation and make better choices, um, having positive social interacting, social interactions, having um, support mechanisms. And what do you do when you take a youth out of their community and send them to a residential program or send them to a youth prison? Or you take away all autonomy, you tell them when to eat, when to sleep, what to wear, you take them away from their families and their communities, and you take um, them away from the gifts that they have for their communities. And then you don't allow them to participate in that, those like first jobs and mowing lawns and doing all the things that all of us experience that helped us become the adults that we are today. Um, and so by overreacting, we actually are setting them up for recidivism. Yeah, and I was just reading a new study that just came out that found exactly that, that, uh, you know, when early intervention actually is counterproductive. It makes them more likely to get involved in the system and more likely to commit future crimes. Sure. And I think it's just reframing how we think about it. You know, I think that there is um, just this thought that curfews are going to help a situation or why not restrict them to their home? Then I'm going to know where they are at all times. Um, and then they've done studies where they've talked about curfews. And again, they're talking about not individual curfews, but curfews like in a town where you can't be out past 16 at a certain age, that that didn't do anything to decrease either victim victimization of youth or victimization by youth. Um, and so these blanket curfews, they don't really work. And I think that our inclination is that that's going to help a situation. If, if youth aren't out late, um, then things are going to be better. Um, and so there's this natural inclination to add that into every probation order um, and keep kids home and have that curfew violation potential. But what we also see is that that's not you know, that's not been normed. It's not valid. It's just kind of our gut feelings about what we need to do to help youth. Yeah, and it, it makes sense, right? Because the youth that are going to be out late and causing problems are the youth that are probably not getting a lot of parental uh, guidance and supervision. And so, you know, putting an artificial barrier on that's probably not going to do that much. There's, a, there's also the piece that, like, about surveillance and the fact that what we want to do is we want to build youth that are going to be contributors to their society and we want healthy, happy, well-formed youth. I think that's what everybody agrees. Um, and by putting like electronic monitors and telling them that they can't go places and putting rules in place just to put rules in place when they're not really making a difference doesn't really assist in that. And we're spending a lot of money the courts are spending a lot of money that could go to credible messenger programs or diversionary programs that are valid and do help change public safety. And although I don't like the word rehabilitation, right? Like this idea of what helps youth and what helps the community is not necessarily, we're just going off of our guts and we're, we're just not always right. And so I think that there's now this embracing of data and research and reform, and there's a lot of um, camps out there that are, that are looking at those and looking at what works and pushing reforms based on evidence. Um, and so I, I think that the 
courts and, and systems are responding to that. And we've kind of built, you know, this system based on uh, a false premise. Um, you know, there was a fear, wasn't that long ago, you know, that the youth were becoming these super predators and uh, they, they were operating without any kind of uh, remorse and uh, they were, uh, you know, a true danger to society. Um, and so we, we built this system that, you know, allowed these kids to get thrown into adult prisons. And then we yeah. discovered, oh, wait, uh, this actually isn't happening. And um, uh, yeah. trying to undo that has been difficult. It's been really difficult. I'm glad you raised it. So, I mean, the super predator myth, and it is a myth, it's been classified as a myth. Um, when it came out, when now looking at the data, the youth crime rate had already begun to drop. So while there had been this small uptick um, that they had relied on in coming to this super predator myth, the reality is at the time it was released and all these newspapers were kind of really clamoring and posting all these stories about youth. Um, and they were just racial tropes, right? Like it was very dehumanizing. Going back to language, you hear terms like wilding, you're hearing about packs of teens roaming the night, right? Like it's, they're, they're, it's not even human language that they're using to describe these kids. Um, it was incorrect. There, it, it, one never came to pass, but at the time it was voiced, it was wrong. Um, and we have not recovered from that. And black and brown youth in the youth justice system have not recovered from that. You, you saw an answer to the super predator myth, um, states adopting transfer provisions that made it easier for them to try kids as adults. We saw mandatory minimums cropping up. We saw changes to purpose statutes it, around this narrative. Um, and even now, when we've now all recognized that it was a myth and we were wrong, rolling back a lot of these provisions that sprang up in the 90s has been really difficult. And one of the fears that we have is that we're now in the midst of potentially, depending on who you listen to, of a small uptick in youth crime, potentially, in crime in general, right? So there's been some articles around that. And there's been other articles saying, wait, wait a minute, it's only some crime and it depends on how you characterize the rate because usually it's per person. So um, in New York, for instance, they do it based on like number of subway rides. And because we were all hunkering at home because of COVID-19, the number of riders was smaller. And therefore, even if there was a decrease in the number of incidences, it could appear to still be an uptick. And so um, there is this concern that people are going to overreact to what's going on. And that's the second piece of the separate super predator myth is that it focused on this small uptick, but it also didn't talk about the fact that we were in the middle of a recession um, and that we had, you know, what we referred to as the crack epidemic going on at that time. And that there were all these other things at play, um, which they weren't taking into account. And so that's, that is a little bit of a fear in the community that we're going to see an overreaction um, to what's going on now, um, to, similar to what we saw in the 90s. But my hope is that we've learned our lesson um, and that we're, we're, we're going to put the right things in place and not overreact to um, what we see as potentially an uptick. 
And one of the classic overreactions was uh, probably the Central Park Five case. You reminded me when you were uh, describing the the fear of wilding, and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, here was kind of now we we recognize it as a classic, um, you know, wrongful conviction case where where you know they they interrogate these kids for hours without their parents, and they browbeat them into into false confessions and um you know and it was all based on all these assumptions that uh none of which were true um, right right yeah so for the exonerated five i i i love that this story is now part of the narrative between when they see us and the ken burns documentary right like people seem to really have um reinvested in this story and i think that you know, many times people will bring it to me and talk about like how outrageous it is. Um, and my response is like, it's not that outrageous. Like this is just one story that we got right in the end. Um, but so many things had to fall in line for it to be rectified. Um, it's just as easy that their story would have never been told. Um, and that there are many youth that are in prisons right now that are no different from the exonerated five. Um, and that we came dangerously close to not knowing um, the truth of that story. So um, when I started doing youth defense, it was a kind of thing where people kind of had never heard of it. And I think a lot of these stories raise these issues that we we train around, you know, Khalif Browder, that's a tragedy. But I think a lot of people didn't even realize that 16 year olds could be on Riker Island, Rikers Island. Um, and so that started a conversation about solitary confinement um, and youth that end up at Rikers Island and what kind of services they are and mental health. Like it started conversations around those things. Um, but there's lots of Khalif Browders out there and there's, you know, there's lots of exonerated fives out there and there's lots of Centoya Browns out there. And those stories, I'm glad that they're getting attention. Um, but I think the takeaway is right, we have to do better because unfortunately these stories are not aberrations. They are stories about what's, what's happening in our system. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Khalif Browder is another really good example. I mean, I mean, talk about minor offenses and he ends up in custody for as long as he did in solitary confinement and then just wrecks him, uh, you know, and we don't think about that. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the mental anguish that this kid had to go through due to stealing what a backpack, I mean, right. uh, or allegedly anyway. Right. Right. I mean, that's crazy. Right, yeah, right. It happens. Right. And that does start to generate conversations around bail and on criminal justice reform. And um, so I'm I'm happy that we're beginning to have those conversations. I am I'm sad um, to keep having those conversations and keep hearing about youth um, like Khalif Browder that have experienced the system in that way. But I think that they've become really important examples of what can really go wrong. I think that there's this myth that youth court is completely benevolent and that, you know, there's really not, what's the worst that's going to happen. Um, and these are examples of, of the worst that, that can happen. 
Now, the one issue that we haven't discussed yet, which we need to, is uh, basically the criminalization of Black youth, mm. uh, the racial disparities. And, you know, I, um, you know, just wasn't that long ago, I, I had this conversation, um, you know, about uh, the fact that ordinary teen behavior when it mm. comes to Black and brown children um, gets criminalized. Things that, you know, me as a white upper middle class kid in suburbia did, mm -hmm. um, that ends up ruining the lives of countless black and brown kids. Yes. Um, if I had to say that there's one thing that is most problematic problematic about the system, that would be it. It would be racial disparities. Um, and they are at every stage in the proceedings, right? It's um, which kids get arrested um, and which kids get diversions, it's which kids get probation and which kids get informal, which kid gets residential programs, which kids get prison and which kids get um, waived to adult court and, and tried as adults. Um, and the, the data is the data, right? So um, we also have talked about when it's um, white, um, uh, white victim versus when it's a, a black victim, right? So um, if it's a white victim, two times more likely to be tried in adult court. You, you can tease out all of the details, the disparities are there, the numbers are there, you can't ignore them. Um, and it's incredibly problematic. So we talk about you know the use of, of marijuana and black and white youth use marijuana or try marijuana at the same rates when they're teenagers. Black youth are disproportionately more likely to end up being arrested and prosecuted for the use of marijuana. And what we've also found is that white youth are more likely um, to try you know, some of the designer drugs and prescription pills and things like that. But the numbers in arrests don't reflect that. Um, it's over policing in neighborhoods. Um, it's police in schools. Um, so uh, Kristen Henning, who's an expert on this topic, has a book called The Rage of Innocence. And in that, she really dives into the history of police in schools, uh, which was a complete eye opener for me. I think like a lot of people, I assume that police in schools happened as a result of Columbine um, and these really sad police uh, and these really sad um, school shootings. And you know, the, the history of police and schools is desegregation um, and really standing in the way of desegregation of schools. And then you see federal money being given more towards schools in the wake of Columbine and some of these um, school violence incidences, but they're not going to those schools. They're going to schools where black and brown youth are. I don't know about you. I didn't have a metal detector or a police officer in school. Um, Kids were getting into fights, kids were selling drugs, kids had all sorts of problems that easily could have resulted in them getting arrested. My school handled it in-house. Um, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So if kids get into fights, which isn't something laudable, but it is normative adolescent behavior, and you have a police officer on grounds, then they're more likely to get records. And so you see this, what we've now termed the school to prison pipeline, um, where there are schools that have police officers that also don't have counselors and, and things that schools rely on when they don't have a police officer standing um, at the front of their school. It's, 
it's it's just the way it is. And that's before you start talking about implicit bias or explicit bias or adultification and the fact that Black youth are seen as older, they're seen as less innocent, right? They do all these studies where they give fact patterns to individuals and in some they indicate that the, the person is, is Black and in others they don't. And then they're, they vote whether to give harsher punishments. And the fact of the matter is in the fact patterns where they believe that the person is Black, they vote more often to give harsher punishments. Um, and so that that is a very large issue that we have to train on, that we have to build reform around um, because we really just have not gotten at that issue yet. Um, the number of youth in prison may have declined in some jurisdictions, but disparities also have increased um, in those same jurisdictions. And so um, a rising tide does not lift all boats. That's it's not happening. Yeah, one of the stories uh, we had Kristen Henning on a few weeks ago, and one of the stories that she told was uh, this boyfriend and girlfriend got into a fight. Mm -hmm. um, she was accusing uh, the boyfriend of having photos of other women. Um, yes. She like smacked him and and took his uh, cell phone. And because there was a police officer on campus, mm -hmm. the school resource officer, he sees it and he ends up arresting her and charging her with robbery. And yes. and so so here's a an act that, you know, um, isn't really criminal or shouldn't be treated as criminal. And it gets criminalized just right. because, A, you have a police officer on the campus in the first mm -hmm. place, which you probably shouldn't. And B, because the police officer apparently uh, lacked all common sense and decided to turn this into a big deal when it shouldn't have been. Right. That's the, the perfect example. I know she also talks about her client that makes the Molotov cocktail, oh, yes. like a drama student. Um, and I've seen those as well, right? Like it's curiosity. Um, it just depends on who's reviewing those facts. Um, I had a client that was accused of trying to create napalm by like lighting a soap dispenser on fire right like so and when i read it i thought like this has just been charged incorrectly there's no way that this is what he's being charged under and that is in fact what they wanted to charge him under um and so a very similar type fact pattern being at a and like school, being interesting. yeah point these examples out because people have in their mind that the reason there's disparities in the system is that more black and brown people commit crimes. And a lot of what I see is that a lot of these disparities exist because they they get charged with things that wouldn't be considered crimes for other people. Um, sure. That's one of them. And then there are also, yeah, there's also just charging decisions in general. Um, who gets diversions that get expunged right away and who doesn't. And then when that person, if they come in contact with the system again, who has a prior record and who does not, there's all these points of um, decision-making. And when there's decision-making left unfettered, left unchecked, there's a chance that there's going to be right, a likelihood that bias is going to creep in. 
Um, and that's, and that's the reality. Well, unfortunately we're out of time, uh, but I really appreciate you coming on and having this discussion. I think this is uh, an issue that not enough people pay enough attention to. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, thank Kristen, you, thank you for having me. Kristen Kersey from the Galt Center. I'll get the name right this time. <laughs> uh, Lovely. Out of uh, Ashbury Park, uh, <laughs> New Jersey. I gotta say that again. You have uh, to. Thank you, you so to. much for coming on. It was nice to meet you. Thank you so much. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.